morning, everybody. Um, I am delighted to welcome Teresa Heaney to uh, Talking Early Years podcast, the podcast that addresses some of the more sticky issues of the early years. And Teresa Heaney is the Chief Executive of Early Childhood Ireland, which is a, a sort of membership and advocacy organisation really promoting quality. Um, I think there's 4,000 members, but Teresa will correct me on that if I'm wrong. And I'm really interested to talk to Teresa this morning about what the Irish call the Employment Regulation Order, which will become very apparent to you. But what it actually means is that Ireland has uh, got its act together so much better than we have in the sense it's got a strategy, it's got a plan, and it's got a way of actually putting some benchmarks around what staff should be entitled to earn on the basis that quality matters, quality of the kick and quality and capability of the staff matters, and that anything we can do at that point is going to drive great experience for all children. So I'm going to actually spend some time today talking to Teresa about how this came about, what it means in relation to uh, the sector and uh, the children and parents, and what the sort of next things are, that are, you know, are needed to, to take this forward. And then we do, as always, end with our call to action and Teresa can give a shout out to whoever she wants and uh, to whatever she wants, because um, we are, we're hoping that, you know, these two countries work well together and always great to have an Irish person on a podcast with me. So, um, so a very, very big welcome to Teresa. And um, I'm going to start by saying, tell us a little bit about the story. This is a great story. So tell us what you want about your organization and how you've got this far and how you brought so many people together because all stories are made up of many actors. So, you know, all of that stuff. <laughs> Good morning, June, and delighted to be talking to you. Yeah, I mean, for sure, there's a lot of different elements to the story and a lot of people who've um, made some of the changes happen. I work, as you said, for Early Childhood Ireland, and we are the leading children's advocacy and membership organization in the Republic of Ireland. We, we work in partnership with our approximately 4,000 members um, to achieve quality experiences for every child in their early years in school age care setting. And our work is about advocacy as well. And we advocate for an effective and an inclusive early years in school age care system um, that values uh children that values childhood and values the services, the early years and school age care services that they uh, participate in. So that's our work. And it would be wrong to, to suggest that anything happened overnight, any of the changes that we're going to talk about now happened overnight. Um, we've been pushing uh, the, the advocacy agenda for, for many, many years in Ireland in relation to um, to the importance of investment in early years settings. Um, but there have been there has been a coming together in the last couple of years under this current government. And, uh, and there have been some significant changes that is certainly worth taking the time to talk about. And uh, I'm very pleased to be here with you this morning. And I suppose uh, I would I would uh, absolutely uh, concur uh, your point about the need for strategy. So a, a lot of um, the initiatives that we're going to speak about were um, proposed first in uh, our 
document in our strategic, our government's document called First Five. It's a whole of government strategy to support children and their families in their earliest years. And First Five um, acknowledges early childhood as a critical period and the importance of supporting the people that are around young children uh, in those earliest years. And it's a whole government strategy that's concerned about social protection, family leave. It's concerned with pregnancy and health supports. It's concerned with supporting parents and their parenting role and the home environment. Um, It discusses transitions, good transitions, how to make good transitions happen for children. Um, It discusses community contexts, libraries and so on. And then there is a a significant part in it that is about high quality Early learning and care is the language that's used in the strategy, but high quality early years and school age services. And I suppose that'll be the the, the vast bulk of what we will discuss uh, in this podcast today. Um, and then within the context of high quality um, uh, ELC, early learning and care, which is the language, as I said, that the strategy uses, it talks about um, affordability, it talks about um, it, it talks about the workforce and it talks about how the state needs to invest in the workforce. So it talks about what needs to happen in relation to childminders. So it, it very much uh, is a wide ranging strategic document that set a plan for the future of our sector. Um, and Teresa, I mean, in the UK, we haven't had a national strategy for early years and, you know, and the sort of support services around it since 2007, when the 10 mm. year strategy that was uh, instigated by the Labour government in 1997 actually completed. And so we kind of find ourselves floundering quite often. We, we know what we want to do, but there's a real challenge to getting the education department to talk to the health department, to talk to the work and pensions department, you know, so bring all those things together. And, you know, this isn't for the want of civil servants really trying hard to kind of, you know, cross that, um, those kind of boundaries. Um, and it's not helped by the fact that on average, we have a new minister every 12 to 14 months. So, um and indeed, Secretary of State now as well. I think uh, we've had about three, if not four, in as many in as many months. To be honest, the way things are going here at the moment. So, how did you guys get that team together? You know, what did how did you persuade government? Because I I know like the Taoiseach, um launched this. It wasn't just the Department for Education that launched this. This is the national government sort of launch. How did you get the you know the persuaded, influenced, uh, supported? that sort of cross-departmental work what was it that what was the catalyst what can we learn from you about how you made that happen because you're absolutely right once that was established the rest is much easier to follow through Mm. in the sense that at least it's a there's an acknowledgement and agreement from from what you're going to work to First five as a as a strategy sits within the context of a wider um, approach to policy making um, within the Department of Children as well. It's called Better Outcomes, Brighter Futures, and the the policy documents that fall out from Better Outcomes, Brighter Futures are uh, are designed 
to acknowledge that solutions and policy needs cross-government planning. So it's an approach uh, that the Department of Children has used since it was established. And um, so implementation, um, the implementation plans are cross-government in nature and they're monitored as well on a cross-government basis. Um, and I suppose the language, we, we, we use sort of the, the language of sticky problems. So sticky problems tend to be problems that are, are more difficult maybe to address be, because they can't be solved by one government department. And as, as you know, I don't need to tell you, June, or any of your listeners, children children's lives cross <clears throat> the responsibilities of many, many departments. Okay. And, uh, you know, so for example, First Five has commitments that are about social protection to allow, to, to ensure that families have sufficient leave that uh, that children uh, can stay at home for the first year of, of their life, which is what evidence tells us is in the best interest of children. So again, you know that that needs a lot of cross-government commitments. And I think it would be fair to say that the Department of Children, it used to be called the Department of Children and Youth Affairs. It's now the department, it's it's uh, it's still now known as the Department of Children. But uh, the current minister, Minister Roderick Gorman, is also responsible for disability, inclusion, equality. And for example, he has a responsibility for the uh, resettlement of the Ukrainian refugees. So, you know, it's a far more broad ranging department now, though I think colloquially is often referred to as the Department of Children still, you know. Um, but that approach by the Department of Children to cross-government working, I would say, is a characteristic of uh, of um it's one of its its uh, discrete uh, characteristics, I would say. So that's very important. And then the implementation body is cross-government as well. So the commitments are designed in the acknowledgement that it needs cross-government planning and cross-government commitments. Um, so that's that's um, that's been really important. One of the other commitments in First Five that we maybe could talk about here as well is that there was a there was a commitment in First Five to exploring the system that er, that the early years and school age, just the, the entire system to review it, to consider is it fit for purpose? Should it be changed? And that report uh, is very recent as well, the report um, that has just issued. So the government instituted an independent review of the operating model for the early years and school age system. To, and the objectives of that operating model was to assess the current model and to identify and appraise options for reform. And so a number of options were considered in that in that review. And the the option that scored the highest was to establish a new statutory agency for the early years and school age system. And so that will combine roles of existing agencies um, as well as the role of the Department of Children. I mean, we obviously would hope that it will reduce things that we know torment uh, operators of services like the burden of administration, dual inspections and so on. Um, but it is a very important development because if the fact that it's on a statutory basis is um, obviously asserting 
you know, front and centre the importance of early years and school age care, um, you know, for, for Ireland. And um, we in Early Childhood Ireland have advocated for a number of years for the need for a single agency um, to reduce fragmentation. Um, and actually the current programme for government, for this current government, did make a commitment to establish a single agency, though it didn't set out what it's functions would be um but uh, and you know the working title is child care ireland um so i think that'll obviously change i can't imagine that that'll be the, the the title at the end though i don't know i wouldn't have any insight into that but it will a statutory agency and um and that can only be to the good if they get the building of that agency right you know and certainly early childhood ireland will be um you know watching and working with them to to bring whatever expertise that we can from other jurisdictions to bear on uh, on the design of that new agency um but the, <clears throat> It's it's uh, it's very welcome development to be seeing. Now it could take years to establish it, but the line of travel is clear, and uh, and um, yeah, the direction is clear. Um, and again, it sort of help, helps again to have a framework. But one of the things that you've managed to crack at the moment, I know you give it the very sexy title of employment regulation order, which obviously trips off the tongue, um, is, uh, is I'm fascinated by that. And I want to use this to talk to our colleagues at the D Department for Education here about mm. some of this stuff. Um, I want you to explain that to our listeners about what is an ERO in, in, in words of simple syllables here, you know, in that, nothing too complex, because we want to be able to translate yeah. this into <laughs> an ask or even a tweet, Teresa. We want it in 140 characters. Um, <laughs> and I know, I know, like, it's not it's not the answer to everything. I understand that. And. But it's I love the story of it and the fact that it was in a way it was shaped by the learning from COVID and the experience of your government actually recognizing more permanently that care is a critical element of national infrastructure and childcare is even more critical um, element mm. of infrastructure. And we had a whole hoo-ha here during COVID where we um, really had to fight the fight for the notion that you're clapping for the NHS, but I wanted them clapping for every care worker in the land because we were keeping the doors open for many of our children and their parents who were working in key agencies. Um, and it took a while before we got um, recognition from our minister and um, and then from more nationally. The actual contribution that childcare makes to keeping the, the, the show on the road, so to mm. speak. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear yeah. more about that uh, from you. I mean, and I think that you're right to, to, to walk back a little bit, to, to get a bit of distance on this and to talk about COVID. Um, I mean, it was very it was very evident very quickly in our context here in Ireland that early years and school age services were critical to the the infrastructure to keeping the country um, to keeping the country going really and keeping keeping um, the workforce in place. So that was evident very quickly, and our government uh, responded quickly with an uh, the EWSS, which was a. Um, a a scheme, a financial support scheme. 
And in the context... Sorry, sorry to interrupt you for a second, Teresa, just for clarity for, for listeners. Would that be similar to what we call the furlough? Yeah, an employer wage subsidy scheme. Yeah, it was oh, called... Okay. Yeah. And it was it was generous. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it was a generous scheme uh, in our sector. And one of the things that an employer who was going to be in receipt of the EWSS, EWAS, I think they call it in some places, there would have to be some kind of an acronym, wouldn't there? So they they um, they had to agree to a number of conditions, and one of which was a fee freeze. And then, so that fee freeze was held. And the after the EWSS, the E was, was suspended. It was replaced by another funding scheme. And again, I then track back again to the first five commitments. And the first five commitments, one of the, the commitments in first five related to affordability, if related to staff wages, um, so first five make, made those commitments, recognized again, back to the evidence, you know, recognized that the, the, the key contributor to quality is the qualifications of the workforce. I think that there's there's a general acknowledgement that that, you know, that that's where that's where that's the key contributor to quality, the, the workforce, the quality of the workforce and the qualifications of the workforce and the access to CPD of the workforce. So so back then we go forward again. So government, so there was there was a huge change, huge level of investment in terms of EWAS. And all at the same time, government had already started a working group um, to develop a new funding model for the sector. And at the same time, a new funding group to to look at workforce within the sector. So they had both started before COVID and then COVID happened. And, you know, and events, events, dear sir, as they say. So I suppose all of those things came together. And um, and then this what, what is now known as core funding was agreed. So last December, government pur- um, published two reports, one called Nurturing Skills, which was uh, the report that focuses on the workforce. And the second was Partnership for the Public Good, which focuses on funding. And they're they're highly linked. They're, they're you know, very, very interlinked. Um, but to say, just to give a very short summary of what's in both of them, um, nurturing skills uh, is written to provide a roadmap for the workforce development. Um, it introduces graduate targets. We already have an incentivization in the preschool program. It's called ECHE here, the ECCE program. So that already incentivizes the employment. It had already incentivized the employment of graduates, but there were no financial incentives to appoint graduates in the other rooms, in uh, you know the baby rooms, the toddler rooms, the waddler rooms. So it set out a, a plan for that to change. It set targets, it set out CPD framework, a career framework, um, proposed supports to study, um, proposed a plan for child minding, uh, as well as school age care. So that was nurturing skills. So that was published. And again, you know, it was a widely consulted upon document. 
the approach to the design of partnership for the public good was a different approach. It was an expert um, your own um, Edward Malhush, for example, was on it. Eva Lloyd was on it. Um, people from the Scandinavian countries were on it. So there was a lot of experts and, I, and a lot of technical expertise uh, on, on that particular group, the Partnership for the Public Good. And when it was published, so it, it was also published last December, and it proposed this, this brand new funding model called core funding. And it proposed proposed a mechanism to fund support for salaries and salaries for graduates, graduates in every room, as I said, but all staff as well. And it also then said, but that's all that for, we're also going to need to see fee control. Um, there needs to be mechanisms to target socioeconomic uh, areas of socioeconomic disadvantage uh, and universal and targeted measures in regard to affordability. So those two reports were published at the same time. And they said, but in order to get this core funding, we're going to need a way to make sure that the key element of staff salaries is addressed um, because like yourselves, there's a, there's a, you know, a staffing, absolutely a staffing crisis all the time. Recruitment is very difficult for the members of Early Childhood Ireland. We hear it all the time from our members. Retention is a challenge. Turnover is a challenge, which is really worrying from a quality point of view. So, so those issues, um, were acknowledged that there had to be a mechanism to, to figure that out. And that's where the ERO came in. Oh. So, so yeah, so um, the, a, a J, this is, a, there's lots of three letter references yeah, now. Yeah. Um, but there was a joint labour committee formed within the context of the Irish Labour Court. The, it, it, it's part of the industrial relations um, right. mechanism. And um, so the employer's body, IBEC and ISME, which are two different employer's bodies here in Ireland, and the unions um, were appointed to, to um, this joint labour committee within the, this joint labour committee uh, with the goal of agreeing an ERO uh, or a number of EROs. And they came to a final agreement uh, just last month. And that has set minimum wages for the sector and across a range of roles. Um, and the you, you I know that you're aware of what the roles are. So there are minimum scales for um for entry level, for lead educators in rooms, for graduate managers in room or graduate graduate leaders in rooms, um, for deputy managers and for graduate managers. So, because a number because a, a number of rates were agreed, I suppose it also begins to to show a career path for the sector because we've not had that before, um, and uh, so it's very you know it's welcome in that regard that it shows a career framework. And from our point of view as an advocacy organisation, what I mean we would say these rates are nowhere near good enough for this workforce. You know we need to be 
really ambitious. We need to be seeing them increase all of the time. But, you know, we would have to acknowledge the work of the people who sat around the table and came to this agreement and have established a stat on a statutory basis these wage scales that we as an advocacy organization can be, you know, can can call on government to say, you need to be investing further, you know, the, the graduate manager needs to be increased or whatever it is we might want to say. Can I ask you then how, I mean, for me, that's all sounds, I mean, pretty, 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 pretty great, actually, because it sets the baseline. I mean, they sometimes call that here the London living wage. But yeah. how do providers cope with the fact that if you're setting statutory baseline salaries and you've got a fee freeze at the same time and the funding that's poured through from the government is is not this is not equal to the to balancing that out how have they responded to that well i think that the the um the the, the amount that's provided in core funding is um I think there's an acknowledgement that to to a greater or lesser extent, it does cover the uh, it covers the what is required. Um, there, I wouldn't say it's it's um, universal. There are certainly services who are you know who see a, a, a big change in the the levels of funding that they would have received before. But government has um, agreed a guarantee mechanism, so they have guaranteed that if you sign up for core funding, you will receive no less than you received last year. Um, so yeah, so so it's there's a guarantee funding and I think actually that's about to be released maybe shortly in the next couple of weeks so that notion of guarantee then, sorry Teresa, to cut across you there's so just for clarity then um you have to sign up for it does that mean that if it's statutory is it not a requirement for anyone who takes children you know with the government fund behind it uh, they have to deliver on that or are you saying that actually people can opt out of this and not uh, take any funding and run a, a completely sort of independent private service and this doesn't apply to them at all or to their staff. Well, that's right. that. No, no, that's absolutely right. So if you sign up for core funding, that means that you're agreeing to fees your freeze your fees. It means that you are going to pay these rates, the, these, these salary rates. And there may indeed be more requirements that come down the road from core funding. You know, for example, government might say, we're going to increase the level of core funding and we would like you to increase your hours of operation, for example. For example, I, you know, we... Or they might say, we want you to, we want a real focus on um, diversity or language or, you know, a different kind of quality measure. You know, so that's all coming down the road, I would think. But what we have now is a mechanism for that government can use, I suppose. It has a mechanism that it can use. It's a, it can flex it. It can say, we want to increase you know, we want to increase provision in an area, so we're going to target that. It's 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 a very much a state oversight investment mechanism, and moving and 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 the language of partnership for the for the public good, you know, does it uses that language? You know, and we can see that the government is now saying this is not this is no longer a private sector. This is a, it, it remains a private sector, but it is a sector that we as a government has a huge interest in and requires huge investment. 
if that does that is that does that clarify your question a little bit more yeah um, it it does and it it opens up um another question i guess which is here in the uk one of the tensions i think in our sector is that there are different funding rates for schools for reception classes um and for the maintained nursery sector all of who would be taking the same children as the what we're we're often called the pvi private voluntary independence And that causes quite a bit of tension. And I think sometimes we haven't, I mean, the lack of strategy is enormous, but sometimes the partnership across the sector can be frayed because of those kind of inequalities in terms of the funding. Is this going to be the case in Ireland? Or will, will a school get the same, you know, expect to pay the same rates to, to a private nursery or an independent nursery or a voluntary sector run nursery? I suppose it's a little bit different because we have virtually no statutory provision in Uh, Ireland. We have about four and a half thousand services in and around four and a half thousand services um, across the, the Republic of Ireland. And they're all they're almost all run by a either a private private company or a not-for-profit company, right. but they're they're they're, they're um, but they're private in the sense that they're not public. They're not run by the state. Sure. So the state's interventions are uh, in terms of public investment, public investment through existing infrastructure. You know, right. as opposed to any kind of statutory infrastructure. And indeed, one of the things that we have welcomed that is part of the operational review one of the one of the the very welcome developments about that is that it does propose a role at local level and i you know that has been missing in our in our context and i think that's really welcome um because at a local level they will be able to have sight of demographic changes you know where where housing is being built and so on and the other key role and you did allude to this a little while ago that the new agency is um, will have is for monitoring and evaluation, and that's that's really really important. That we all have a line sight on assessing the impact. You know, doesn't matter how much is getting spent if it's not providing good quality services. So mm-hmm. you know that 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 work on establishment of standards and monitoring and evaluation of that is something that's really really important. Um, and the other thing in terms of, of the challenges going forward, uh, you know, access is an increasing problem. It's very hard in parts of the country to get places for babies. You often see that in local media about, you know, parents are on waiting lists before their child is even conceived. You yeah. know, often see that. So access is becoming a problem. And I suppose the other issue, and, and it's certainly a concern for early childhood Ireland, is diversity of provision. Right. Um, you know, a lot of families want access to child minders. A lot of families like small services. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the design approach needs to be one which says, we do want diversity. You know, um, there's there's a place for all types of, of provision, but we do want a diversity of provision. And I think that we're going to need the state to help with that within um, a local context in terms of, um, yeah, just trying to make sure having a having a plan that looks for to ensure for 
for diversity at a local level, small provision, childminder provision. That's one of the things that we didn't speak about yet. The other big development last year was the launch of the Childminding Action Plan, because we have very few registered and regulated childminders in Ireland. You know, depending on what report you read, there might be 15,000 childminders, there might be 30,000 childminders. So, you know, it's it's a large, very, very large cohort. Um, and most of those aren't regulated because the current system of regulation excludes them. And um, because you can't you, you can't register if you only if you only look after maybe, say, two children, the current system of regulation um, just can't they they can't register. You have to have more children than that. Um, and the affordability mechanisms that government has introduced, the National Child Care Scheme being being the key one. Um, is only available to a registered setting. So, if oh, parents, so it excludes childminders then. Well, if a parent is using a childminder and the current system of regulation excludes childminders, then the parent can't access that uh-huh. uh, funding via that childminder. So there's a plan to address that. And uh, that, again, needs legislation. But I understand that they're about to launch uh, or that... They're, they're hopeful of being able to launch a heads of bill shortly. So we should have legislation in place next year for that so that the National Child Care Scheme will be available to those families, um, hopefully by the end of next year or early 2024. Do you foresee then a pattern where you have these childminding agencies where they, uh, in a way, pull together groups of childminders? Yeah and have a separate uh, registration and uh, improvement process. Uh, do you imagine yeah. to continue as sole providers who gradually are you know, um, registered gradually and, and come into the system, so to speak? I think that the government, given the you know the size of that particular part of the gov- the the workforce, I think the government want to take it very softly. They've appointed childminding development officers in um, across the country, um, which I assume and I assume there's a plan to to recruit more people into that role. Um, so what they want first and foremost is to make sure that the childminders that are there currently stay. that they feel supported, that the regulation that is developed is um, suitable. It's, um, you know, that it's fit for purpose, that it is, um, yeah, that that it's relevant to the realm of childminding. And um, and they have they have various committees established to consult with childminders on on what that might look like. Um, but there is it's very important if we're concerned about, as I said, diversity, if we're concerned about children, because, as I said, a lot of families, it's their preferred option. And uh, and we need to make sure, therefore, that given the number of children that are in childminders uh, homes, that those settings are supported and regulated. No, I, I take your point. My niece went to one in Sligo and uh, my brother took me along to, to see um, where she was going. And uh, it took me a while to figure out what it was. And then I recognised it was a small home childminder as opposed to a nursery. But the language my brother was using was a creche. Um, which seems to be a standard use of language across Ireland about for anything that involves children outside of the home sort of thing. So it took me a while to figure it out. 
Uh, so yes, I I, I I totally get where you're going with that. But I mean, I guess the key question is to 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 answer, and, and I know we're kind of coming to the end of this very interesting conversation. Is is there a sense that, in a way, the Irish, with um, with the way they've taken the, the, their strategy, are maybe thinking about ultimately um, making all of uh, the services to um, to children under fives? a part of a national statutory national service. So it becomes part of the state's offer to families and children, rather than necessarily leaving the market to decide what's, you know, what's available and what's not available. Um, You know, is that an ultimate aim, either deliberate or perhaps uh, unconscious? It's not a name that I've read in any policy documents. I don't think it's it. I don't think that it's a, um, a policy direction. Certainly not in the in the the documents that have been published to date. But there is definitely an acknowledgement. Like we passed uh, the last budget, uh, we passed a billion euros uh, in investment, uh, and that really to be to be fair to the current government and the previous minister that uh, there has been an escalation in investment in the last few years that has brought us to this 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 billion euros but and you know the the call to action in terms of Ireland like we're nowhere near done you know like we yeah. there there is so much to be done there's so much in the in the world of the workforce I mean as I said the rates of pay are great that they're minimum rates but they are minimum rates yeah. um we like they're so they they really need to to continue to build um we need uh, a plan for as I said we need a plan for diversity we need a plan for monitoring and evaluation. We need a plan for access. And we need to see that, you know, the next five years continuing to build on, on this billion and continuing to address the question of affordability. I mean, Irish parents still pay huge amounts of money uh, every month. And in January, after the recent budget in January, that, that is expected to reduce by a significant amount um, and the government has made a commitment to continue to to reduce the amount that Irish parents pay um, so so all of those things are elements no doubt they're all elements of a public system um, but at the moment government is using the infrastructure to control fees to set minimum rates of, of pay to uh, address affordability um, and to address the standards across across the settings um, in terms of the quality of the provision and to address the question of the workforce. So, you know, we we are currently, we're hearing at the moment that the government is in discussion with universities about funding uh, the the cost of early years degrees for early years, uh, the early years workforce. Um, So all of that is really, really welcome. And it's it's the state doing its job. Um, for sure. Um, and if we can get all of those right, they'll, they'll have done their job well. That's different to whether or not the, the services should be provided publicly. Um, me, in terms of Early Childhood Ireland, I think I'd be more concerned with making sure that they're provided well, rather yeah. than by whom they're provided. And by well, I mean that they're properly funded, 
properly monitored to a high standard, um, you know, those those characteristics, I think, are, are more of a concern to early childhood Ireland at the moment. There's a lot to be done. Yes, it's a, it's a very fair point, but it's a very interesting one when you're looking at it in that kind of bird's eye view of a country that's kind of pulling the whole thing together. And, and it begs some some of those questions. And I think this is the kind of question some of us are having here in the UK as well. Is it, In the end, should we, you know, given that the, the government has a responsibility because childcare is part of a national infrastructure and indeed women who work and parents who work, they contribute back into the tax receipts to the Treasury anyway, but there's not been enough research done on that to actually show there's some top line stuff done, but I'd like to see some real detail on yeah. that. So it's not and, like giving I mean, money away, they're earning it back as well by having people come back into the system. Yes, yeah, sorry to interrupt you. And, it, you know, it would be important to say that, um, that <laughs> operators who've, you know, who have invested in their, you know, be that be that a not-for-profit operator or a private operator that has invested in their service over the years, um, is looking at this new role that the state is taking upon itself and may well not welcome it. You know, there's far higher levels of oversight and accountability for this billion euros, if you like. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, as an organization concerned about the quality of provision and having worked with our members over the years struggling to um, keep their doors open in a sustainable way, and also hearing from families about the fact that the, the cost of, of uh, you know, the, the cost of access and childcare is just so huge for them. Like this is the job of the state from our point of view. It is absolutely the job of the state to be investing in services. There's no doubt about that. And that is very challenging. I would have to acknowledge, of course, that's challenging if you're the operator and you're the person that's in, you know, uh, has the, the loan with the bank for the million euros for the place that, that you built or developed completely so that's why we need to see government committing over a five-year base you know a five-year plan that um you know a plan and a commitment and acknowledgement that that the relationship is changing and saying but you know this is our plan for ongoing investment over the next five years you know because you have to the, the operators have to trust that the government is going to do that. So if they're depending in the future on government to, pro to provide funding to so that services can be delivered to a high standard, then that then government needs to, to uh, play to their side of that, that deal as well and needs to be as open and straightforward with operators um, as, as they can be and as the because the operators will need that need that guarantee that I'm signing up to provide this service and I'm signing up for core funding and your part of the bargain is that you're committing to to do that with me you know and you know you're going to increase the rates you know year on year so that they keep up with inflation and so on you know so so there are you know partnership has has two sides um but from our point of view, as I said, this is the work of government. For sure, it's the work of government. Uh, this is what we want them to do. And we just, as an organisation, need to make sure they're doing it in a long-term, sustainable way. Thank you very much. I mean, I think that you've, you've summed that up nicely and you've made me feel um, that actually the, the mantra that we use here at LEAF and the mantra that um, that's implied from your conversation is basically 
accessing affordable, high quality um, education and care for all children, irrespective of their their social and uh, economic background. So that actually you're trying to create a model where there isn't a division and a gap between the uh, affluent and the less affluent families so that actually any child can have access to that. And right now we're not there yet either. You know, right now we're seeing an opposite effect. We're seeing an increase in um, settings in in affluent areas and a decrease in settings in less affluent areas. And unless organisations like mine will go into those spaces, those children are left without a service. So it's very interesting, your narrative about the role of the state and the role of the deliverers and how that is woven together. But I absolutely see that some of the, there would be some tensions in getting that 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 right. And and um, and that the there has to be a trusting relationship between the state and the providers so that actually there's a, a, a clear narrative. But I think your point at the beginning, and I take you back to that again, was this works when it's evidence-based, when it's supported by evidence, and when it actually is driven by evidence. So it takes the emotion out of it and actually the uh, the personal values out of it. It simply says, if we believe that our children should deserve the best quality early years education by the time they're five, these are the things we need to do. It's irrelevant who does them and how they're, you know, but these are the things we need to do. And if the state says, children are our citizens and we have a responsibility to them. These are the, this is the structure we need to put in place to ensure that that's delivered. So I guess uh, just to sum that up then, if you had, um, you had a call to action and you had three things that we could learn from, Teresa, and we need to learn from our sisters elsewhere. And, you know, and like you say, there's much to do. And I think some of the things that are being delayed is because we're a, female dominated sector you know I think feminism has failed so far in that for me the success of feminism in this country and in this in the west is that every woman has right to go to work and know that there's a childcare system that's going to support her to do that work and we're not there yet and so for me uh, feminism has much to, um, to to do to address things in other parts of the world hugely but for us, I think that's the baseline that actually we haven't got it right yet because a woman anywhere can't walk out of her door and know that she can access really good experience for her child and not have to, it's not random and it's not what she can afford and it's not where she lives. It's actually part of society's responsibility to every child to say, you know, we want them to have a really good start. We know why that matters. And we that that is just how it is. It is how it is. It's not a deal. It's not a, you know, a big conversation. It is every child has rights to those places. And we know that they're good for them. Mm. So I guess that's, for me, is yeah. what I'm hearing from you. In, yeah, in, I mean, I think that... The translation of your strategy, really. Yeah, I think the place to start is is undoubtedly about what's in the best interest of children and if a family... And what is the evidence telling us about that? And, you know, as I don't need to tell you or your listeners, June, you know, the quality of the provision is what's most important. Um, so putting in place the mechanisms to to um, to ensure that that the quality of the services um, meets the needs of the children who are using it is is the most important thing. That has to be our starting point. And that's very challenging because sometimes 
um, we might decide that it's not in children's best interest to, you know, attend a service at seven in the morning and leave it at six in the evening if they're 14 months old. You know, we may not want that for our children, uh, for example. So, you know, so it's it's complex and may not meet the needs of employers in the, you know, just mm-hmm. as as per the the your own um uh, analysis in relation to feminism and the right of women to to attend work employers have a role to play in this into the future there is no doubt about that um but what where would where would i say that um where would the recommendations be i would say look at the evidence what's in the best interest of children i mean i think that our department of children did that well in the in the development of first five and um and as i said you know developing the strategy within the context of a whole of government certainly has strengthened it there's no doubt about that um the that has led to acknowledgement that the state has a responsibility for children before before they turn five. You know, children don't suddenly just appear at the door of a school when they're five. They've been somewhere before that. Yeah. So I think that's 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 certainly in terms of the public's point of view and government point of view, that's really important. And um and long-term planning and partnership with the people. Uh, who operate the services is another key characteristic of of any approach to the development of um, a well, a, you know, a well resourced system. Theresa, thank you so much. I'm hoping that my colleagues at the Department for Education would be willing to listen to this. I'm certainly going to send them a note on this. And uh, I read your report, The Nurturing Skills, and I will make sure they get the Partnership for Public Good. So at least we can start that conversation and look to you as a good example of how you've pulled things together. And as I say, I take absolutely my hat off to you and to every member of the whole of the Irish system that you that have pulled together to create this step. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, actually, I started feeling a little bit despondent, thinking, oh, we're so far behind here. But actually, the conversation has been quite uplifting. So I actually feel quite uh, motivated to pull together some of this stuff and go to um, my colleagues and actually say, let's really unpack some of this stuff and see how it will work for us. So thank you and again. I'm glad, and I'm glad to hear that. that Friday. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad to hear that you're finishing and you're not you're not despondent because I think I don't think the world could cope with a Juno Sullivan that was despondent, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. But thank you very much again. All and, right. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at somewhere uh, where we have these big conversations. Thank you very much, June. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thank you for joining me today. If you like what you heard, please share it or check it out on our website, leaf.org.uk.